Okay. If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open up uh, to Galatians chapter 4. We are working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and we've hit the halfway point. There are six chapters, and we're about to begin uh, the fourth chapter. So this morning uh, we'll start, we'll begin our look at chapter 4 with verses 1 through 7. You guys can follow along as I read. Paul writing says this, What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because we are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So Lord, I pray that you use me this morning to speak your word to your people in a way that's life-giving. Lord, thank you for this rich text, for this, this letter that has survived uh, the centuries. I pray, Lord, you use me today to do it justice. Amen? Okay, analogies. I love analogies. My kids tease me to say, Dad, you are the king of analogies. Throughout their, their whole life growing up, any time I, I could capture what, from my perspective, was a teachable moment, I would communicate to them in the language of analogies. And it just flows over into my, you guys well know how you know, I'll teach and preach a sermon. Well, Paul is use, utilizing uh, the analogy of imprisonment. Uh, in this letter. And as we went through chapter 3, he utilized the analogy of imprisonment to explain the function and the purpose of the law, of the the Hebrew law, the law of Moses, of the religious system and structure that had previously been in place. And we could see, uh, we looked at in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul asked this question. Why then was the law given? And he answers it a few verses later, verses 23 to 25, when he says, Before the coming of this faith, meaning grace, meaning the gospel of grace, meaning um, the person of Jesus Christ, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer longer under the law. So Paul's saying this system was in place. A new system has come. We were, and he uses the analogy, hey, we were in prison. We were locked up as it were. We were in custody, like a, when a perpetrator gets arrest, arrested, he's in, he's in custody of the law, right? We... We have him in custody. As it were, we were in custody under the law. The Hebrews certainly were. Until Jesus, the promised one, until he came and he set us free. 
At the end of chapter 3, Paul begins to employ new language. Instead of this analogy of the law, he's, he's using new language now. And he's using relational language, the language of family. And he ends chapter 3 with these words. Verses 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's changing his language. Any good preacher will make the same point again and again and again using different language, different examples, different analogies, so that all who are sitting there listening will have an opportunity to grasp it. I remember being in a conference once and John, John Wimber was speaking. And he said to us, he said, I will keep making the same point again and again and again until it registers on your faces that you're getting it, right? And so he just kept finding new and creative and different ways of saying the same thing over and over again with the hope that the listeners would, would capture the truth of what he was communicating. Well, Paul's doing the very same thing here. First he uses the language of being in prison under the law, and now he's using new language, and it's the language of family. It's the language of relationship. We're children of God. Of God. We're heirs to the promise. And so Paul continues this language, this family language, as he goes into chapter 4. And chapter 4 begins with these words. What I am saying is, that's his opening statement in chapter 4. In other words, he's building upon his previous statements. What I'm saying is, let me explain it to you yet one more way what I've been telling you up until this point. So let me take a little rabbit trail here. These letters uh, were not written with chapter and verse identifiers. When these letters were written, there was no chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, no, no verses to, to break them down. The chapters and verses were added later, much later. In the mid-13th century, a Catholic cardinal named Hugo divided a late 4th century uh, version of the Bible called the Latin Vulgate. He was the first one to break it down into chapters. And he was, he was doing this because he was in the process of trying to create a concordance. And without it broken down, it was less organized, a little bit more difficult to accomplish his task. About a thousand years after this 4th century Bible was written, in 1445, a Jewish astronomer named Mordecai Nathan divided the Old Testament into chapters. Later on, with the assistance of a scholar named uh, Theus, uh, they broke down those Old Testament chapters into verses. And about a hundred years later, in 1551, the New Testament was divided into verses. It was the work of a famous English printer. Uh, his name was Robert Stevens, and interestingly enough, I thought, he did this. He broke the, the New Testament down into verses while riding on horseback uh, from Switzerland to France. Yeah. I'm thinking a horse is going slow. I don't know. Just Okay, rabbit trail over. So my point is this. When Paul wrote his letters to the Galatians, there was no break between the last verses of chapter 3 and these first verses of chapter 4. It was a continuous uh, flow of thought. 
And we need to understand it uh, that way. Paul, Paul's a teacher, and like any good teacher or preacher, he's using many different ways to try and communicate uh, the point. So he's moved on from the analogy of the law as a prison to the language of family. Specifically here, he's using the language of children and heirs. So verses 1 and 2, what I am saying, chapter 4, what I'm saying is that as long as there, let me say that again, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So he's building on his previous point. He's saying we're all heirs to the promise God made to the patriarch Abraham. And that promise was, and still is, Jesus. For a time, we, the heirs of the promise, were temporarily subject to the guardians and trustees of the Lord Moses. So, God established a relationship with Abraham that preceded Moses, it preceded the law. So he establishes a relationship with Abraham, and it's a relationship based on trust. It's a relationship based on faith. Abraham believed God, Scripture tells us, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was, that was part of the original design. God created the heavens and the earth, put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he walked with them in the cool of the day. It was relational. It was highly relational. Until sin came in, messed everything up. God establishes a new standard of relationship with Abraham, and it's based upon love and trust, not rules and regulations. Later on, the law comes in. All the religious rules and regulations that were established uh, began with Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. A new system was put in place. Paul's saying that that system of the law were the guardians, were the trustees of the promise. The promise is what God had with Adam and Eve. The promise is what God shared with Abraham. But then the law came in. And it came in and it served as guardians and trustees until a later time. Until the children became old enough, mature enough, at the time the father set, so that now that they could have the promise that was given to Abraham. So it was given until Jesus. It was given until the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was given until the promise came and became for you and I the cure for sin on Calvary's Hill. Until Jesus came and he completely fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the covenant, the old covenant. He didn't dissolve it. He didn't say it was inappropriate. He didn't say it was insufficient. What he said was, he fulfilled it. So there was, a, there was an agreement between humanity and God. And Jesus came and fulfilled that covenant. We no longer live under those rules. That's over. I'm trying, to think of, I'm trying to think of an analogy that would work here. So if you went into a business agreement with someone, and you sign a contract with them, and the time came when they fulfilled their end of the contract and you fulfilled your end of the contract, that contract's finished. You close that contract, 
you put the file in your filing cabinet and gathers dust for until you throw it away someday, right? You never, you're not living under that contract anymore. Well, the law of Moses, this is an analogy, it breaks down at some point, but that contract was filled, and we no longer live under the requirements of that contract. We now live under the promise God made to Abraham of, of a relationship of love and trust, and that was established with Jesus. He said, a new covenant I give to you. And he gave us a new covenant. Amen. A covenant of extravagant love. A covenant of amazing grace through faith. A covenant that is a relationship of trust. Very much like the one he had with Abraham. Very much like the one that started off with Adam and Eve. That's what's available to you. So, talk about the cultural context here. Analogies are most effective when they're culturally relevant. And so part of the challenge of communicating the truths from Scripture is to have some understanding of what the cultural context was when the analogy was made. And if we fail to do that, we may miss the point. So Paul is speaking in a context that his readers would readily understand. Maybe us not so much, but they did. So in both Jewish and Greek cultures, there was a definite coming of age culture. Uh, there were definite coming-of-age ceremonies that children would go through. Rites of passage into adulthood. I remember having a... We don't really do that much anymore. and we, Certainly, I didn't have one in my family growing up. But, but I felt like it was, in, it was important. I remember driving my son to college. First time he's going to live away from home. And this was a major turning point in his life. He was going to live on his own. He was going to function completely separate and apart from us. And I drove him to college, it was about three hours away, and I, re I remember having this conversation with him. And I said, Tom, things change now. I said, you'll always be my son, I'll always be your father, and I will always love you. That never changes. I said, but there are things, in, this is a significant moment in life. You're not just a boy living at home anymore. You're a man on your own. I wanted to make sure he understood that. And we had a conversation about faith. I said, from this day forward, you will no longer serve the God of your father. But you'll serve God on your own terms. It'll be your God or he won't. He goes, living in my house as a pastor, guess what? They were church. <laughs> they were church on Sunday morning, you know. They might have been groggy. They maybe didn't want to be there. But they were there. I said, look, those, those rules no longer apply to you. You go if, if you want to go. You have a relationship with God if you want to. As, as a man, as an adult. So for us, for my family, the wacky family, that was our coming-of-age ceremony. That was our rite of passage into adulthood for, for my son. In the Roman culture, um, there was no specific age for when a son became a man. It happened when the Roman's father, the, the son's father, believed, thought that the boy was ready. When the father thought, it was the right time. So when Paul uses the phrase here, until this time set by the Father, he shows that he's drawing from a Roman custom of this uh, rite of passage, this coming of age. More so than, than drawing upon a Jewish a custom, where at 13 uh, the boy would become a man. So he's speaking to Gentiles, not to Jews. He's speaking to the Galatians. And he's having this whole conversation with them because Jews are trying to put this law on top of them. 
And so he's speaking to them, and he's using Roman language, language that they would understand. Verses 3 to 5. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So here Paul's making application of his analogy to the Gentiles, to us as well. Like heirs who are too young to inherit uh, the father's estate, the promise that was given, we were, as verse 3 states, enslaved to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Or as the Passion Translation states it, enslaved under the relig uh, regulations of ritual and religion. Or as the message puts it, when we were minors, we were just like slaves, ordered around by simple instructions, the tutors and administrations, administrators of this world, with no say in the conduct of our lives. So imagine, imagine you come from an extremely wealthy family, and you know the day is going to come that you're going to... You're going to inherit the family estate, but you're only like 16 years old. You're 16, and of course you know everything about everything. You have all the answers to the universe. You don't need help from anybody. But for whatever reason, your mean father says you're not going to get to inherit the family's estate yet. That's going to come at another time. So waiting for the time the father is set, for when the inheritance can come. The King James Version takes verse 3 and says it this way. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So Paul uses an interesting phrase here. Elements of the world. In Greek, it's probably better to translate it as elements of the universe. Elements in Greek is stoichion, stoichion, meaning basic elements. And the, the word for world is cosmos which can easily be translated um, universe. So the word elements here, what it means is any first thing, or it means the letters of the alphabet. I think we, looking at it for us, it would mean this. Um, learning your ABCs. Learning first things. Learning basic elementary principles or truths, simple things. So we were in school, we learned our ABCs. We all remember, right? Kindergarten, first grade, you know, whatever. We learned our ABCs. So that's what Paul's speaking about here when he says the, the uh, elements of the world. So what is this elementary knowledge? What is this ABCs of the universe? commentator I enjoy named David Guzik had some interesting things to say. Let, let me read a couple of paragraphs to you. Guzik writes, he says, the idea of the ABCs of the universe is important. If there's any ABC of the universe, elementary principle, that we must break free from and that is stressed in pagan religions just as much <laughs> as Jewish law, it is the principle of cause and effect. Call it karma. Call it you get what you deserve, or whatever. It rules nature and the minds of men. We live under the idea 
that we get what we deserve. When we are good, we deserve to receive good. When we are bad, we deserve to receive bad. Um, that's some of the elemental truths of the universe. It's also communicated in many churches around the world. Guzik goes on to say, Paul tells the Galatians to go beyond this ABCs in the universe into the understanding of God's grace. Grace contradicts this ABCs of the universe because under grace, God does not deal with us on the basis of what we deserve. Our good cannot justify us under grace. Our bad need not condemn us. God's blessing and favor is given on, the principle, on a principle completely apart from the ABCs of the universe. His blessing and favor is given for reasons that are completely in him and has nothing to do with us. Guys, that's good news. Man, that's amazing good news, right? What, all, what did those two paragraphs say? I can say it in three words. Grace beats karma. Grace beats the heck out of karma. Grace trumps karma, right? The grace of God in my life and in your life is that I haven't gotten what I deserve. If I got from God what I deserved over 57 years of living this life, I'd be an ink spot on the ground. You know? Lightning should have come a long time ago and I should just be ashes and cinders. I didn't get what I deserved. What I got was grace. When I thought he was going to take me to the woodshed, give me the whooping I felt like I deserved, what I got instead was a, the embrace of a loving father. And scripture's true when it says that it's kindness that leads to repentance. There are times I, in his great grace where I experience his kindness and his love for me, and I'm, and I'm broken by it. I'm humbled by it. I go around, it's been a while now, but I used to go around a lot and, and teach in other churches. And sometimes I would ask this basic question. I'd say, okay, everybody in the room here, how many of you, when you think of your earthly father, would think that, wow, this is the most loving person I ever met. This is the most supportive person I've ever met. This is the most present um, and loving uh, person, kindest person I ever met in my whole life. How many of you, when you think of your earthly father, those are the thoughts that immediately come to mind? If there are a hundred people in the room, maybe three of them will raise their hands, right? There's hardly any of us. And some of us have, one, have had wonderful fathers or have had that relationship restored, and that's great. But many of us have had terrible examples with our fathers. Many of us carry what I called a daddy wound, right? And so... The scripture tells us how we've been created in the image of God. I think we turn right around and we create God in our own image. And all too often, that image looks a whole lot like our earthly father. <laughs> and we, it gives us a distorted view of who God the Father is. And so when we do bad, we expect bad. Because our mother used to say, <laughs> just wait till your father comes home, right? And when he came home, it wasn't pretty. You know? And so we expect God to treat us that way too. And he doesn't. He doesn't treat us in, in the, the fashion that says we get what we deserve. He treats us with great and amazing grace. Very good news. 
Okay, so back to this text. Verse 4 is telling us so that the regulations and the rituals of the law, they were temporary. These tutors, these administrators, as it said in the message, they had a limited contract, okay? And their time was up. The beginning of verse 4 says that when the time set, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. The son who, in the second half of verse 4 says, was born of a woman and born under the law. So the eternal son of God in heaven adds humanity to his deity and he became a man. And he was sent. Why was he sent? Takes us to verse 5. To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Why was the son sent? Because it was the right time. The time of those administrators and tutors of the law, their time was up. Their contract had expired. It had been completely fulfilled. And so he sends the son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoptions of sons. So the word redemption here, a very specific word is used, and it has, um, and it means more than just a concept of buying something. You redeem something. I take my coupon, I redeem my coupon, and, and I purchase an app, or I, you know, sometimes the kids will get us Amazon gift card, so I redeem my gift card, and I purchase something. Well, the word redeem here means more than just simply to make a purchase. It means more than to buy. And according to Vine's Dictionary of Biblical Words, it means to purchase a slave with the intent of setting him free. Not just to purchase a slave, and that this, now the slave serves you, but that you purchase that slave with the purpose of setting them free. That's what this word redemption here means. That's what Jesus did for us. To purchase a slave with the intention of granting them freedom. That's what he did to us. Jesus paid a price that we couldn't pay. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, we were bought with a price. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So he purchased us. Jesus purchased us with his blood. He redeemed us and he set us free. And more than that, more than being set free from sin, more than being set free from slavery under the law, we've been set free and been adopted as children of God. Slavery is an uncommon concept to most of us, but could you imagine? You're a slave in a house serving a master. And not only does the price of your slavery get, get paid and, and freedom is granted to you, but now you've been adopted as a son. Wow, a whole nother level. Right? A, a slave who's set free is not an heir to the family fortune. A slave who's been set free and now adopted as a son, now he is an heir. So not just set free and sent on our way. Set free and made a member of the family. Members and heirs. The word adoption here. Paul probably also had in mind the Roman custom 
of adoption. He earlier employs a, a Roman or Gentile understanding of coming of age. It stands to reason that he continues with a Roman or Gentile understanding of adoption. Under Roman adoption, adopted sons were given absolutely equal privileges in the family. They weren't second-class sons. They weren't in a lower tier, as it were, as compared to the natural-born sons. They were fully and completely equal to the natural-born sons and daughters in every way. So the Greek word used here for adoption is weathasia. And it's made up of two words. Weas, meaning son, and thasia, meaning a placing. Or the placing of a son. A son has been given place in the family. Or someone who is given the place as a son in the family. It means specifically this. The place and condition of a son given to one to whom it does not naturally belong. And that's exactly what you and I have experienced in Christ Jesus. Not simply set free from slavery, but an honored position in the family of God. Guys, we have a seat at the table. <laughs> right? When the holidays come, there's a place set for you. You're not, it's not like you're uninvited or they forgot to tell you. Well, you have to sit at the kids' table, right? You've got a seat at the table. All of this from the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as Paul wrote to the Romans, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Again, rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. It's Romans 8, 15 to 17. And it echoes perfectly the last two verses I want to look at today. Verses 6 and 7 of Galatians 4. You could tell it's the same author. Because he writes here, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child of God. And since you are his child, you are made into an heir. Now, I hope you guys understand. Tom made this point, I don't know, a week or two ago. That when, when Paul writes that we're his sons, he's not excluding you ladies. Okay? Again, he's using the language of analogy. And in that culture of that time, only the males were able to, to uh, receive the inheritance. It was passed on uh, through the family line. Through the man. So he's, when he says sons, he's not saying sons only. He's trying to say, you become the family member who is uh, capable, who's qualified to receive the inheritance. So it would, uh, it would be appropriate today to hear it this way, sons and daughters. To understand the cultural context and understand why it was written why it was, you need to understand how things worked then. But concerning our relationship with God, Ladies, you're fully included in this. You too. Make no mistake. You too are full ass of the promise. So, so much is said in these two short verses. I love the word Abba here. 
Commentator Ronald Y.K. Fung writes this concerning the word Abba. He says, Abba is an Aramaic affectionate diminutive or word for father. And it's used in the intimacy of the family circle. It's passed and it passed without change into the vocabulary of Greek-speaking Christians. So this is an, Abba is an Aramaic term. But, but the term was fully employed and embraced by Greek-speaking Christians. They, they just adopted the word wholesale, and that didn't change it at all. I like to use Vine's Dictionary of Biblical Words when I, when I study the scriptures of past sermons. And concerning um, the word Abba, it told me that it's only used three times in scripture, Mark 14, 36, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Romans 8.15, which I read to you a few minutes ago, and also in Galatians 4, verse 6, that we're looking at right now. And so, in an early uh, rabbinical commentary <coughs> called the Gemara, it says this about the word Abba, that it, it stated that slaves were forbidden to address the head of the family by this term. If you were a slave in the household, you could not call the head of that house Abba. You could not call the father in the house Abba. It would be inappropriate. It would be a violation of protocol for a slave to use uh, the term Abba. They were not allowed. They were absolutely forbidden from using that term. It was to be used by family only. It was an intimate term and that could not be used by a slave. And Paul knows this. He knows this as he's writing the letter that only family members get to use the term of endearment, Abba. And he's telling us that because, guys, we're no longer slaves. You and I are no longer slaves under the Old Covenant. We're children. We're heirs. The word Abba comes from, um, from the pursing of the lips. Abba. Think of a baby when they first speak. They'll say, Papa, right? Or in our house, in spite of the fact that Nadine poured out all her time, energy, blood, every guts, everything she had into raising these children, the first words out of their mouth were, Dada, <laughs> right? That's what Abba is. It means, it means Dada. It means a term that a, a child would say to their father, or Papa, or Abba. It's a, it, it, it speaks of unreasoning trust, high levels of trust between the speaker and the hearer. And the scripture tells us that not only can we use the term Abba, we get to cry it out. We get to cry out Abba. We have that kind of access. We have that kind of liberty. I've heard it says that protocol is no longer necessary with close friends, right? Your best friend comes over to your house. They probably don't even have to ring the doorbell, right? If your door's unlocked, they just walk right in. If they want something to drink, they don't ask you. They just go to the refrigerator and get it. They're your close friend. When my kids visit, <laughs> right, they're not asking permission to have or use anything in the house. It's all theirs. They know that they have full access. This is what this term Abba is trying to to communicate to us. I remember years ago, we were hosting a pretty big conference, and, um, and because 
I was the pastor of the host church. A lot of people were drawing on me. We were in between sessions. I'm kind of standing in the back of the room. And no joke, I got a line of like a dozen people who want to speak to me. And I'm thinking, I'm not that important. I don't know what I possibly could say to, to so many people. But they, a lot of people were waiting online to speak to me. And I'm, I'm speaking to the first person. And off to the side, I can see my daughter standing at the back of the line. I'm like, not only is she my daughter, she's also the church secretary. But she's my daughter. So I look at her and I kind of point to her. And she gets my attention. And I, and I motion to her, come here. And she comes up and I said to her, you are my daughter. You do not wait in line. <laughs> you never wait in line. I got to tell you what, those words landed on her heart. And for the rest of her life, she has lived completely comfortable in the reality that I don't wait online. <laughs> that I have full and instant access to my father. I don't have to make an appointment to meet with him. I don't have to go through hoops. I don't have to make sure that every I is dotted and every T is crossed. This is my papa. She calls me pops. This is my father, and he loves me. I don't wait online. And right, ever since that day, she owns that. Like, so if she calls me or sends a text message, I don't respond, like, instantly. She's like, hey, I don't wait online. <laughs> so remind me. And she does it. Well, that's, that kind of communicates some of the point there. He's our papa. We have that kind of access to him. We don't have to wait online. She had every right, no matter who was online, no matter how important the conversations were, she could interrupt me in that second. Nadine never had to learn any of those lessons. She always, she, she'd been the church diva everywhere we went. She knew that she always had. The reality is she didn't wait online. That was established a long time ago, right? We can be intimate with God the Father. We can be as intimate with God the Father as Jesus was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he cries out, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. Astonishing that we have that level of access. It's mind-blowing. That you and I can be that intimate with the all powerful God of the universe. I've told you again and again, this illustrates the point in one more way. Guys, it's all about relationship. See, waiting online, that's rules, regulations. That's, that's traditions. That's the law. Instant access, all about relationship. Verse 6 says, because we are sons, sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba Father. The spirit who calls out, Abba Father. Roman 8 says, uh, by the spirit we cry, Abba Father. Not only do we get to use the word, we get to cry it out. We have that kind of access. We have that level of liberty and freedom. Commentator John Stott speaks about sonship and writes this. Thus, God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. The same spirit that rose Christ Jesus from the dead his very same spirit, the same spirit that hovered over the earth in creation. 
The same Spirit in perfect union with the Father and the Son. That Spirit lives inside you and I now. Like the Holy Spirit has access to the Father and Son. We have access. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. We're no longer slaves. Because slaves can't use the term Abba. We're sons and daughters, children and heirs. This is a beautiful progression here. First we're set free from slavery. Then we're declared sons and daughters adopted into God's family. And then as sons, we're made heirs to the promise. Heirs inherit something. What's the inheritance? Paul makes it clear. An heir of God through Christ Jesus. What do we get to inherit? God himself. <laughs> By his spirit alive within us. The richest of all inheritances. Verse 7 in the New King James says it this way. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. Through Christ. All of it is through Christ. Our release from slavery, our sonship, the spirit of Jesus in our hearts. Our status is as all birthrights given to us in Christ Jesus. And we receive them through Christ alone. So John and Laura, why don't you come back up for a final song. Let's pray. Why don't you guys stand? Lord, I pray that you would make this shift in our brains. This shift from religious slavery into full freedom as sons and daughters. Help us make that shift, oh God. Lord, make that shift in our brains from seeing you as an angry father like some of our fathers were, but let us see you for who you are. Compassionate, merciful, gracious, and loving. Lord, I pray that you would write this truth on our hearts that grace trumps karma. <laughs> Beats the tar out of it. Write this truth on our hearts, oh God. Help us make this ship. The Galatians struggled with it. The Hebrews struggled with it. Some of us struggle to this day, oh God, with knowing the truth of your word, with appropriating the fullness of the gospel of graces available to us. Set us free, Lord, from religious traditions. Set us free from the rules and regulations designed by men throughout the centuries, oh God. Set us free. Set us free. Set us free from a slave mentality to an heir mentality. That all of us may live completely as your sons and daughters with you as our loving Papa. As these guys lead us in a final song, if you need prayer for anything, come forward. We'll be happy to pray for you.